The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. You've got to hand it to Farron. He's ruthless and efficient. He runs an orderly society. Didn't you tell me an hour ago you wanted to kill him? I said I admire him. I didn't say I like him better than me. At least you're consistently Nietzschean in your views. Thank you. They found the guards. We don't have time to be subtle or nice anymore. We have to kill him. I take it back. You're not consistently Nietzschean. What do you mean? What's to stop them from killing us, huh? Try a hostage, a high-level hostage? Mr. April, I like the way you think. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, August 16, 2012. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Paul McKeever. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the clothes, everything will be Good morning, London, and welcome to the show today where 519-661-3600 is always the number you can call to reach us or write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Welcome to the show today, Paul McKeever. Welcome, uh, welcome. I guess I should be welcoming you as well as co-host today. That's exactly right. You're sitting in for Robert Vaughn today, who's going to be expected to be here again next week, and you're just here as the private Paul McKeever. Is that correct? That's right. No, no yeah. particular affiliation no. other than human being. <laughs> Co-host and interesting uh, talk about town type of person. I know, I know what I'm talking about today. I'm going to be carving a bit of a niche for Nietzsche, and that was at your suggestion some time ago, which I'll get back to in a second. But what are you going to be bringing to the table today for the second half of the show? Well, in the uh, second uh, half of the show, we're going to start off a little bit of a discussion about a fellow named Paul Ryan, who's causing major waves uh, to be formed over in the United States, but it has implications uh, for freedom in general. And then following that, we're going to talk a little bit about Al Quds Day, which is being held tomorrow at Queen's Park and in 70 different places around the world. We're going to find out what the significance of that is and uh, whether we should be supporting it or opposing it. Yeah, I saw Dalton McGinty trying to sort of distance himself from it, but not quite. But in any case, um, I'll be starting off with uh, a little talk about uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. Friedrich Nietzsche. And, um, you know, you were the one that encouraged me to try and appreciate the works of Friedrich Nietzsche while maintaining a very healthy distance from his philosophy, (laughs) right? Right, right. And I remember you doing that, and... I have to tell you, my only real familiarity with um, with Nietzsche up to that point was a rather superficial sense of what he was all about. You know, I saw a few references by Ayn Rand. I've read a few summaries and philosophy books. And believe it or not, I think I got my biggest dose of, uh, of Nietzsche from watching Gene Roddenberry's TV series Andromeda. Uh, from which we'll be hearing more today. That was our opener, too. You've never seen that show. I, I have not, but uh, yeah, I look forward well, to hearing you might, more. You might be interested in it. So I thought we'd uh, kick off the show this morning with someone else's uh, interpretation of what Nietzsche is about, and that was Robert Fulford in the National Post of January 24th, 2012, in which he wrote an essay entitled Carving a Nietzsche, which is where <laughs> I borrowed my, my title from. And uh, here's what he has to say. Tell me if you, you know, we'll, we'll come back after and you tell me if you think you agree with most of these uh, observations sure, or sure. whether they're wrong and whether this man has had the influence on our society that he claims that he has. Ah, yes. So here we go. Friedrich Nietzsche. 
Friedrich Nietzsche, depending on how you pronounce it, is one of those philosophers you just can't kill. Our political leaders are Nietzschean heroes, fueled by the will to power. In popular fiction and journalism, we etern eternally reinvent the drama of Nietzschean characters who scorn tradition and prove their bravery by setting their own course, as he urged. Nietzsche might recognize the tone of current U.S. politics. In the Republican primaries, politicians struggle against inherited dogma, big government, while Democrats pledge to fight the ideology they fear, capitalism. But of course, both parties maintain a respect for Christianity that would make Nietzsche decide he had lived in vain. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know it, but Nietzsche scripted many of our conversations, putting words in our mouths. When we talk about culture, the culture of this, the culture of that, and we do, don't we? We echo him, anyone who discusses values, instead of, say, ethics, is talking Nietzsche talk. He was the original culture warrior. He laid the foundation for the struggle between traditionalism and modernism, an enduring battle. Nietzsche is endlessly, infuriatingly contradictory. One day he leaves us in despair about the future of humanity. On another, he says the potential for liberated humanity is limitless. Right. <laughs> His tone ranges from insistent to hysterical. <laughs> Fascists liked him. Decades after Nietzsche's death, Hitler claimed him as a chum, even though Nietzsche maintained that anti-Semitism was a stupid German fantasy. Isn't that interesting? I bet you most people don't know that. Oh, yes. Well, his sister, you know... Well, uh, that's, was, that's the next thing he's going to bring up. Yeah. yeah. Sadly, his sister, Elizabeth Forster Nietzsche, having in, inherited control of his reputation, let the Nazis use his name. Yeah. Although I can see why they did when we look at his philosophy later on. Uh, Nietzsche placed his biggest bet on the higher man, the overman or ubermensch, the superior being, often translated into English as Superman. That was the word Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster borrowed in the 1930s for their creation, Superman the Comic. Right. Alan Bloom, the author of The Closing of the American Mind, blamed Nietzsche for the emotional deadness and intellectual sterility of university students. <laughs> they learned too easily and too soon that God was dead, and in fact, they could set aside all intellectual traditions as calcified dogma without bothering to understand them. In Bloom's view, Americans didn't grasp the context and ended up accepting nihilism with a happy ending. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? If God is dead, relax. Nietzsche's great champion on this continent was H.L. Mencken, ah, yes. who at the age of 27 wrote the first book on Nietzsche in English. He loved the way his hero hurled his javelin, quote-unquote, at the authority of God, and that he broke from the crowd of thinkers after becoming the most famous American intellectual of the 1920s. Mencken admitted that his ideas were based on Nietzsche. Quote, without him, I'd never have come to them, end quote. Emma Goldman, the legendary anarchist, said Nietzsche's work took her to undreamed of heights. Nietzsche was a devoted reader of Ralph Waldo Emerson, 1803-1882. Consider that Emerson wrote, quote, Every evil to which we do not succumb is a benefactor, end quote. Nietzsche liked that. He underscored it and later wrote a version of it that has been endlessly quoted. What will not kill you, or what will not kill me, will make me stronger, right? right? right. <laughs> end quote. I've heard people say that without having any idea that it comes from a German philosopher. 
So that was basically what Robert Fulford had to say on it in the uh, in the um, National Post. So any just quick responses to that, just off the top of your head? Well, I mean, I think he's hit the high notes. Uh, uh, certainly, and I know you're going to get into it a little bit uh, mm. with re- with respect to how this has anything at all to do with Ayn Rand. Um, but, um, you know, I think it's absolutely right to say that he's had a massive influence, especially in the universities. Uh, it is all too easy, uh, having read Nietzsche, to uh, come to the conclusion that, well, since he's right and God is dead... Uh, and I don't mean this in a literal sense, but in the figurative sense, uh, there is no right and wrong, and that has really uh, allowed university professors to push the whole agenda of, you know, moral subjectivism and radical skepticism, where you have a whole, you know, uh, uh, generation now who believes that you can't really be certain of anything, so why bother trying? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because when you talked me into doing this, I would have done this eventually, even if you hadn't been the co-host, but I figured since you're the co-host today, I'm going to bore your expertise on this. And I went through that book that you lent me there, which you've got across here, which oh, I yeah. finally have given back to Paul after, oh, what's this, two years now? Maybe? Uh, thereabouts, yeah. <laughs> Going on a decade. And it's like called that. Introducing Nietzsche. And I took some basic highlights and quotes from it that I thought we could discuss after this coming up break, and perhaps even take into consideration some of the comments that we'll hear during this break. So let's take that break now, sure. and we'll come back and just talk about Nietzsche for a bit, right after this. What's happening? Well, Ken, I'm going to ask you some questions while I eat my chips. First, who is the philosopher who developed the concept of the Superman in Also Sprach Zarathustra? No? That's a chip up the nose, I'm afraid. Friedrich Nietzsche. Next, in which book did Nietzsche claim that almost all higher culture is based on cruelty? Are you thinking or are you in mid-stutter? You're mad. Beyond good and evil. I got the last African easy one, huh, Cam? Okay. Um, uh, let me think, let me think. Um, where are the diamonds? Jealous friends of solitude, of our own deepest, most midnight, most midday solitude. You know, Tyr, a lot of people think you're selfish because you're always reading, you're always lifting, and you're always exercising. But the way I see it, I think you are just always trying to improve yourself. I never had that luxury. I never really got into the philosophy thing, you know. You've been too busy surviving. I respect that. Still, there's a great deal Nietzsche could teach you. Like what? To create your own values. To live life consistent with your deepest instinctual drives. Such as? Survival. Got it covered. What else? Reproduction. I'm gonna lift some more weights. 
<laughs> well, that suddenly became a very heavy subject. <laughs> <laughs> did she just change the subject, or did she suddenly become a convert? I wasn't too sure about that. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> well, she certainly wants to remain an individual, not a mother, from the, the sounds of things. Uh, yeah, yeah it, and you know, it's really funny because that was from, by the way, the, the first episode of the series Andromeda, which I now know was a very perfectly consistent interpretation of Nietzsche's philosophy through the characters that they developed on that show. Mm -hmm. And I think all of the members on the crew represented a certain element of philosophy, with the captain being the most objective, you okay. know, and all the other characters being, you know, any other, you know, subjectivism, intrinsicism, um, all of the other isms you can think of in terms of personal philosophies, right? Okay. And contrasted against each other, all of them gathering around this one objective person trying to, well, create a new world, which we'll hear about a little later. Now, Nietzsche himself, I have to tell you, I'm almost puzzled by his popularity, in a sense. Now, he's often confused with Ayn Rand, so I want to get that out of the way right off right. the top, because a lot of people compare what he has been saying to the things Ayn Rand said. And, of course, she did not agree with his philosophy at all. In fact, I checked it out, and it says, philosophically, this is Ayn Rand speaking, Nietzsche is a mystic and an irrationalist which I guess is a way of saying he's a nut bar. <laughs> I don't know. His metaphysics consists of a somewhat byronic and mystically malevolent universe. His epistemology subordinates reason to will, or feeling, or instinct, or blood, or innate virtues of character. But, as a poet, he projects at times, not consistently, a magnificent feeling for man's greatness expressed in emotional, not intellectual terms, right. right? You could almost hear that the way Tyr in that clip was reading him, right? Yeah. And, and, you, and, and, it's, and it's compelling just yeah. to listen to it. And then she writes, Nietzsche's rebellion against altruism consisted of replacing the sacrifice of oneself to others by the sacrifice of others to oneself. Well, I'll tell you, that's a theme in Andromeda <laughs> for sure. He proclaimed that the ideal man is moved not by reason, but by his blood, by his innate instincts, feeling, and the will to power, that he is predestined by birth to rule over others and sacrifice them to himself, while they are predestined by birth to be his victims and slaves. Interesting philosophy. <laughs> well, and, and how easily grafted on does Nazism, you know? Yes. Um, and also that reason, logic, principles are futile and debilitating, that morality is useless, that the superman is beyond good and evil, that he is a beast of prey whose ultimate standard is nothing but his own whim. Thus Nietzsche's rejection of the witch doctor consisted of elevating Attila into a moral ideal, which meant a double surrender of morality to the witch doctor. Now, of course, Rand used the witch doctor and Attila as uh, faith and force, I right. guess. Right. Um, Destroyers of the modern world. Symbols of those two things, yes. Right. So, generally agree with that interpretation? Or? I do. I, you know, I, I kind of sum it up like this. I'd say that, and I don't know if you're going to get into this, so let me know if I'm stepping on what you're, no, where you're going, but... You know, when I was reading Nietzsche, I thought, my goodness, I've seen a lot of what he's saying in Rand's work, which I had read prior. And But what I saw in Nietzsche wasn't the advocacy of reality and reason and ra rational uh, egoism and that kind of thing. What I saw instead was a tearing down of something else. And, and you know, it's, it's worthwhile to remember that his father was a Lutheran minister. I think what we see in Nietzsche is a rebellion against 
religion, about, about uh, you know, a rebellion against religious teachings and against religious morality. And he's essentially throwing the baby out with the bathwater. He's saying, you know, uh, these rules are, are completely uh, uh, evil. They're used to, uh, well, he wouldn't usually use, I think, use the word for, uh, evil to describe them because that would suggest that he, he's, mm. <laughs> you know, adopting morality. But I think he's saying that religion is, has no place in a, in a human being's life and that in the process... He says, morality, a code of right and wrong, has no place. And I think that's where Rand said, ah, Nietzsche, you were kind of right. You threw out the religion and with it, God, you know, but in the process, you forgot to fill the vacuum. And I think that that's what Rand did. You can see in, even in the Fountainhead, there's this one line uh, where uh, in the newspaper, the hero is referred to as Superman. Mm-hmm. And I think that's maybe a tip of the hat to Nietzsche, but it's not an, an, an acceptance of his uh, of his philosophy because she's basically saying you're wrong, Nietzsche. There is a morality out there, and it can be determined uh, by reason. And that's really where she came in, I think. It's funny because when you read some of his his individual quotes, which again are all we discussed this a little bit. We talked about how ambiguous so many of them are, right? It can yeah. be interpreted so many different ways. And so if I look at some of them, I'm going, "Wow, that sounds like Ayn Rand." And yet I could interpret it and say, "No, no, that's the exact opposite." Sure. Maybe. But who knows what he was thinking at the time. Yeah. And uh, this is a guy who had his own problems. I don't want to get into all the issues I read about his views of women and sex and oh. all those. Like, he was kind of a little bit of a weirdo. Sure. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. But he, he certainly um, grabbed the attention of a lot of people. And I was surprised in, in his history, especially near the end, how few copies of, it, of his book it took to become so famous, like near the end, he, he he would have to print his own books, print 40 copies, 40, yeah, and they become world famous. And yeah. this was before the age of the internet, for heaven's sakes. Right. right. So how, what, were there only 40 people reading at the time? Uh-huh. <laughs> I started wondering about that. How does how does that get through? Of course, it gets through all the universities and the, oh, sure. and the schools, and that's, how, and that's where these ideas become adopted. Right. Right. So here's just a few of the some quotes I picked. I, I bet you we could spend an hour on any one of these. But uh, this one seems a little off base, but it, it reminded me of something John McMurray has said in the past about knowledge and its pursuit. And he and this is Nietzsche: the pursuit of knowledge for its own sake makes as little sense as the pursuit of goodness for its own sake, and can be just as harmful. If we ask goodness for what purpose, so too we must also insist on knowledge for what purpose, end quote. I think Rand would agree with that entirely. And so would John McMurray. Yeah. And because of course, but what what would knowledge be without purpose? Like he says, there are many things I do not wish to know. Wisdom sets a limit on knowledge too. Like you can be overwhelmed with information, I guess, right? Is that what he's getting at? Or what is he? Because if it's knowledge... I almost always thought of knowledge as being that which you would apply. Other than that, it's is it really knowledge? Well, it, it, I guess it could be knowledge, but if it's if it's being pursued for no particular purpose, I mean, if it's just being pursued uh, in the sense of, as he says, just I want to know because I want to know, but I have no particular reason for knowing. I think that's when it becomes uh, a, a fool's uh, a fool's venture. You know, and same with morality, as yeah. he says. Just yeah. notice this other quote was very related. Ask not, what can we know, but rather, what is it good for us to know? So basically, knowledge precedes, purpose precedes knowledge. Yeah. Does it? 
Well, you'd have to, I think that's what McMurray would argue, and I think... You certainly have to have knowledge of your purpose before you could have purpose before knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> but, but certainly, once you know your purpose, then you can guide your, your pursuit of knowledge uh, in, a, in a way that's consistent with living a human life instead of just in a sort of random, ad hoc way. Here's, here's one on, uh, on madness, something he had a personal experience with. But he says, madness is something rare in individuals, but in groups, parties, peoples, ages, it is the rule. <laughs> yeah, and 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 ask what is that a fair means. statement? Well, oh, okay. Well, you Maybe. know what is madness, right? I think if he's talking about what happens in group scenarios, and we see it on the streets of Quebec, for example, I think what, what madness means in that case is just a lack of control, uh, acting out according to whatever you know the urge of the moment tells you to do. Chaos. Chaos, exactly. Yeah. And interestingly, I mean, his philosophy by pushing this idea of doing what feels right at the moment, this range of the moment thinking ultimately is perfectly consistent with what you see on the streets of Quebec and and the madness there. So uh, I'm not sure that he's in a position to criticize it. <laughs> and maybe that's why he did go mad. I don't know. Well, you, you start to wonder, here's a sentence that really bothers me. I don't know how he could... I don't even know what he means by this. Quote, The irrationality of a thing is no argument against its existence, rather a condition of it. Does that make any sense at all? Well, unless he's trying to make a statement that everything is irrational. Well, that, that wouldn't make any sense either. Yeah, that would make the statement he's making irrational and, and itself. And can, <laughs> can a thing be irrational? Things aren't irrational. And, if, and thing, yeah. a thing exists. I think he's mixing up metaphysics with epistemology here. Although he is, you know, as Rand was saying, poetic. And so a thing might yes. very well... well yeah. That gives you license to say almost anything you want, you got doesn't it. it? Yeah, and and that's that's the problem there. I think also there's there's some deliberate ambiguity that is thought provoking in a lot of what he says, his aphorisms and whatnot, and and I I'm a fan of that. Mm-hmm. But um, you're right, it, it, it can mislead if you're reading things too literally. I think you can draw some pretty weird conclusions out of what mm-hmm. he's right. written. Now here's one that probably fits some of most people's understanding of what he said: that which is done out of love always takes place beyond good and evil, which is the title of one of his books, right? Hmm. And uh, was that what he, what that title was meant to refer to? That if you do something out of love, you're beyond good and evil? I don't think that's true to begin with. Yeah, but, I mean, I but think... But the motivation might not be evil. Is that what he's saying? Or, but then it would be good. Isn't love supposed to be, you know what I mean? Well, he's putting I, love outside of good and evil. Yeah, yeah, I think he's putting emotion outside of, of uh, rationality there. He's saying, you know, when you're following your heart, you don't have to be following your mind, and you're beyond the mind. You're just literally pursuing your passion. Now, here's one about truth. We've heard today that truth is no longer a defense in some situations. He wrote, there are no pre-established... Or sorry, there is no pre-established harmony between the furtherance of truth and the well-being of mankind. Read that one again. How did that go again? There is no pre-established harmony between the furtherance of truth and the well-being of mankind. In other words, he's saying, I think there's no relationship between advocating truth and being truthful and the well-being of mankind. I can't agree with that. Well, he says no pre-established one. I guess he's. Oh wow! You know, maybe okay. he's saying, "Well, you know, you've got to establish it, um, that link between truth and mankind." And that and I think relates to that earlier purpose-related uh, uh, statement you made that well, well, knowledge without purpose. You know, 
Uh, that's what I was going to say. Truth by itself, if it has no purpose, what are you talking about, right? right? Um, it's true the sky is blue. What, what are we going to do with that? You right. Know, not much you can do. Here's one that you... you're trying to match your T-shirt to the sky. Yeah. <laughs> Here's one that you yourself used, which was surprising to me in your opening of your documentary that you did on Mark Emery, The Principle of Pot. Ah, yes. And the movie begins with the quote... He who fights with monsters should look to it that he himself does not become a monster. Yes. Which was the first half of the quote, the second half being, and when you gaze into the abyss, take care that the abyss does not gaze into you. I mean, that statement must have a certain significance to you personally, wouldn't it? Uh, I think you that's... you used it in that context? I think that's the most dramatically, uh, uh, well, good uh, aphorism he has. And... Um, that's also one of the most popularly quoted. But um, the the interesting thing about this is that both in English and in German, uh, the phrase there, you know, doing battle with, with monsters, yeah. uh, there's two ways of looking at that. You know, when you do battle with something, does that mean you're in opposition to them or you're fighting side by side with them? And so, for example, if you were doing battle with the Nazis, it could mean that you were fighting the Nazis or it could mean that you're standing side by side with the Nazis fighting the Allies. Uh, either way, you might become a monster, and <laughs> that would depend. Yes. Just by joining the monsters, I think you, you, you easily become a monster. In opposing the monsters, I, I suppose it depends on whether you fight virtuously or viciously. It also seems to imply that there are times when you have to work with the enemy. And and that you must be careful not to become the enemy, if you know what I'm saying. Well, that, and it might relate to that, you know, my enemy's enemy is my friend type in of that, thing. Yeah. In that sense. So who knows how that could end up being used. Uh, just a couple more I had here. Um, let's start with this one. This is one that I know bothers a lot of people. The Christian faith is from the beginning sacrifice. Sacrifice of all freedom, all pride, all self-confidence of the spirit, and at the same time, enslavement and self-mockery, self-mutilation. So that's sort of what he thought about Christianity. Now, he had a really strict Christian upbringing, didn't sure. he? Oh, yes. Yeah. And I, you know, he might have had, he might have started with a dislike of, of Christianity because of, um, yeah, you know, not liking the way he was brought up. I think, though, that it wouldn't be fair to say he was merely uh, ticked off with daddy. I, I think he re really did think about it uh, in terms of, you know, is Christianity uh, consistent with living a human life? And I think he correctly uh, decided that it is not. Uh, he didn't give us an answer as to how it should be lived, not the right one anyway, but uh, I think he was right to say that, uh, I mean, the description itself, I don't think most most bishops could even disagree with. Um, it is self-sacrifice. It is, um, you know, self-deprecating. Well, explicitly preach it at many times. Oh, yes. So, uh, you know, he, maybe he's not even being that inventive there, but rather just quoting <laughs> what he's heard in the church. Yeah. Okay. You know? <laughs> now, this was what the book that you lent me said was the fundamental point of Nietzsche. And it says, morality cannot be based upon reason alone, or if it is, then my reason may not be the same as yours. Each of us should devise his own virtue, his own categorical imperative. A people perishes if it mistakes its own duty for the concept of general duty. Mm. What do you think of that one? Well, that's your code of moral subjectivism in its full flourish, isn't it? That's um, effectively saying that uh, each person... It, you know, there's two senses in which people talk about subjectivity. One is, I'm in a certain set of situations or... Uh, 
you know, factual situation that you're not in. You know, I'm pregnant, you're a male, for example. Um, and that, that is one sense in which uh, a, a given situation might, uh, a decision might be made one way by one person and another way by another. But there is a different sense of subjectivity in which you say literally that the abstract right and wrong is different from person to person. And I think that's what he really meant. I think that's true. But, you know, when I look at it, I I think what he was saying, a people perishes if it mistakes its own duty. I think he was talking about personal selfishness versus the common good Mm -hmm. when he talks about the general duty. But at the same time, I can look at, well, of course, he didn't interpret it that way, but what I think he was looking for to fill that, that vacuum when he said, morality can't be based on reason alone. He's correct. I think the missing element is reality. There has to be an objective basis against which no. <laughs> to measure that. But he doesn't say that. He's no. speaking about a common duty. Yeah, it, right? could, be a, it could be a statement against rationalism. I, I don't know. Uh, and that's the whole ambiguity of, of, sure. of, um, of Friedrich Nietzsche. We're at the bottom of the hour already. Can wow. you imagine that? Um, just wanted to say before we went to this clip on the on the this is the closing scene of the uh, first two part premiere episode of Andromeda, which you have not seen, I know, which pretty well set up that show's ongoing tension between the philosophy of Nietzsche and the far more objective philosophy of the captain, whose name is Captain Hunt, played by uh, Kevin Sorbo. But unlike, but like Nietzsche's philosophy itself, the show is very uneven in focus and you know the storylines went all over the place and even the moral lessons to be learned weren't always consistent they were the characters were consistent the stories just weren't right. if you know what i mean um but i suppose that's the secret behind understanding nietzsche that it's you know if it's even possible to do now andromeda lasted five years ending in 2005 and uh, it was rerun to death in syndication just like star trek it's a it's a it is a gene roddenberry series and yet, uh, I know a lot of people who've never sampled it. So here's the closing scene of the first episode of that, and when we come back on the other side, we'll be changing subjects entirely. We'll be talking about Paul Ryan, south of the border. Back after this. This isn't my time anymore. I've checked your historical records. And since my time, life has gotten a lot harder. Civilization is in tatters, the strong... Pray on the weak, there is no justice, there's no unity, there's no law. I intend to change all that. The Commonwealth wasn't just an institution. It was a dream, but dreams don't die. And as long as I'm alive and in command of the Andromeda, neither will the Commonwealth. You want to restore the Commonwealth? I think it's my duty to try. But I need help. I need a crew. Us? Why not? You're smart, you're capable, and you deserve better lives than what you've got. Now, what's wrong with our lives? Living from moment to moment with nothing to fight for but survival, scrambling for the big score, the fast buck, you tell me. If we agree to come along, how is that any better? It's a chance to do something important. Something meaningful. And it's more than that. It's an adventure. Maybe the greatest adventure anyone has ever seen. And if we succeed, You'll go down in history. You'll be heroes. And if we fail, we'll be dead. In the end, we all die when our time comes. Do you want to do this? When the divine opens a way, who are we to question? We're with you, Beck. Whatever you say goes, but I think it might be kind of fun. (sighs) No offense, Becca, but have you seen the crew quarters on this thing? 
showers in every room, and fresh coffee. What do you say? If worse comes to worst, you can always leave. You know, a lot of people will not be enchanted by this plan of yours. Nothing worth doing is easy. What the hell? Beats doing salvage runs. Looks like you got yourself a crew. What about you? What about me? We are going to restore the Commonwealth. We have to restore it for everyone. Including the Nietzscheans. Well, that's a lovely sentiment, sir, but what's in it for me? Didn't Nietzsche once say, the secret of reaping the greatest enjoyment from life is to live dangerously. You read the right books. I'm a man of many talents. And high ideals. Which, frankly, is a problem. I just want to speak to you a little bit about Ayn Rand and what she meant to me in my life and the fight we're engaged here in Congress. Uh, I grew up on Ayn Rand, that's what I tell people. I, uh, you know, everybody does their soul searching and, and trying to find out who they are and what they believe and you learn about yourself. Uh, I grew up reading Ayn Rand and it taught me quite a bit about who I am and what my value systems are and what my beliefs are. Uh, it's, it inspired me so much that I, it's required reading in my office for all my interns and my staff. We start with Atlas Shrugged. Uh, people tell me I need to start with Fountainhead, then go to Atlas Shrugged. There's a big debate about that. We go to Fountainhead, uh, but then we move on, and, I, and, and we require Mises and Hayek as well. But uh, the reason I got involved in public service, um, by and large, if I had to credit one thinker, one person, it would be Ayn Rand. And uh, the fight we are in here, make no mistake about it, is a fight of individualism versus collectivism. In almost every fight we are involved in here on Capitol Hill, whether it's an amendment vote that I'll take later on this afternoon or a big piece of policy we're putting through our Ways and Means Committee, it is a fight that usually comes down to one conflict, individualism versus collectivism. And so when you take a look at where we are today, uh, some would say we're on offense, some would say we're on defense. I'd say it's a little bit of both. And when you look at the 20th century experiment with collectivism that Ayn Rand, more than anybody else, did such a good job of articulating the pitfalls of statism and collectivism. You can't find another thinker or writer who did a better job of describing and laying out the moral case for capitalism than Ayn Rand. It's so important that we go back to our roots to look at Ayn Rand's vision, her writings, to, to see what our girding, undergrounding principles are. I always go back to you know, Francisco Denconia's speech at Bill Taggart's wedding on money, you know, when I think about monetary policy, and then I go to the 64-page John Galt speech you know, on the radio at the end and, and, and go back to a lot of other things that she did to try and make sure I can check my premises so that I know that what I'm believing and doing and advancing are square with the key principles of individualism. Is this an easy fight? Absolutely not, it's an easy fight. But if we are going to actually win this, we need to make sure that we're solid on premises, that our principles are well defended, and if we want to go and, and articulately defend these principles and what they mean to our society, what they mean for the trends that we sent internationally, we have to go back to Ayn Rand, because there is no better place to find 
the moral case for capitalism and individualism than through Ayn Rand's writings and works. The voice you just heard was that of Paul Ryan, the 42-year-old devoutly Catholic Republican congressman from Wisconsin, who has been chosen to be the vice presidential running mate of presumptive Republican presidential nominee Mitt Romney. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Ryan gave his speech at a meeting of the Atlas Society, which is a group inspired by the writings of Ayn Rand. Indeed, the name of the group is borrowed from Rand's famous novel, Atlas Shrugged, a story in which the productive in society go on strike, refusing to produce things that would be taken from them by force and given to the unproductive. Ryan gave his speech to the Atlas Society in 2005 without much being made of it by the media or the public. However, in the spring of 2002, when it became apparent that Ryan was a contender for vice presidential running mate, running's praise for Rand gave rise to concern among Christian Republicans, and it was seized upon by Democrats eager to prove that Ryan has no concern for the poor. Now, taken at face value, Ryan's advocacy of Rand should uh, generate such responses from the left and from the religious. Uh, whether or not Rand personally influenced Ryan, and whether or not Rand's books are required reading for Ryan's staff, to assert that nobody better stated the moral case for capitalism than Ayn Rand is a very, very bold claim to make. Sure is. Yeah, I mean, especially for a Republican, and particularly... running mate for president. Yeah, I mean, right. And and this is a country where such a large percentage of the electorate is comprised of devout Christians. It's mm. not it's not the case that the United States is a is a uh, an objectivist society, you know. It's a small but, but growing movement, that is. You know, you know, that's always befuddled me. I've always wondered why... I understand the basic... Christian, you know, religious debate, but why that has to come into the political when they have more in common than 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 not is yeah. always beyond me. I think they've just found some, you know, it's just a, a way they've found to get people together and vote Republican more than anything else. It's just practicality or pragmatism. You know, those with at least some familiarity with Rand know that she did not believe in God, and at the heart of Rand's philosophy, which she called objectivism, is the idea that knowledge, including knowledge about how you should live your life and treat others can be obtained only by way of observing and thinking rationally about your own observations, things you see with your eyes and hear with your ears, and etc. Rand rejected the idea that knowledge can be obtained by faith or divine revelation, and so she rejected the idea that knowledge of right and wrong can be obtained by faith or divine revelation. Her own consideration of what she observed revealed to her that nature, the nature of a human being, dictates the purpose of one's life. Your highest purpose, she said, is to pursue your own happiness. And she said, to achieve happiness, one must pursue the material and spiritual values, you know, material values being things like money and spiritual values being things like love and friendship, that are consistent with living life on earth. The only effective way, she said, to pursue those values is through rational, personal effort. Government's role in all of this, she explained, is to defend you from the people who, by taking your life or taking your liberty or your property without your consent, would interfere with your pursuit of your own happiness. And you, know, you have to keep in mind in all of this that Rand is echoing uh, the, the, the Declaration of Independence, which mm -hmm. spoke of rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's a very American concept, but it's also essential to her philosophy. It's the pursuit so, of happiness, which is your purpose in life. So should we be overjoyed at this with regards to Paul Ryan? <laughs> well, let's get into that. I mean, by implication, Rand's philosophy regards a belief in God as arbitrary. It regards faith as irrational and ineffective. And that central virtue of Christianity, which is sacrificing of yourself for the relief of others, uh, Rand's philosophy regards as utterly vicious. 
Which sounds very Nietzschean, doesn't it? In a sense, it is. Yeah. You know, that's the the negative part, the yeah. the, the uh, thing that created the vacuum that she filled. And just as Christians believe that you cannot fulfill the purpose of getting into heaven by putting the pursuit of your own happiness first, Rand's philosophy asserts that one cannot achieve happiness on this earth by making yourself a slave to others or by giving away your values uh, to people who are complete strangers for nothing in return. And so, facing the possibility that Ryan might be selected as a running mate, the National Review, which is a conservative news magazine, very popular in the United States, approached Ryan for an interview in April of 2012 you see, the National Review is regarded as a magazine with a fair bit of clout in conservative circles, and it has a history of opposing Ayn Rand and her philosophy. In 1957, the National Review published a book review in which it smeared Rand's Atlas Shrugged, saying, quote, From almost any page of Atlas Shrugged, a voice can be heard from painful necessity commanding to the gas chambers go. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> it's a famous uh, criticism and a, and a horrible smear and completely uh, mischaracterization of the book. In particular, it denounced the idea that Rand's philosophy puts man, quote, at the center of a godless world, unquote. And that, that part's true. Uh, I think that's fair to say. Over the years, the National Review has republished that shameful book review numerous times, essentially to tell Republicans that Rand's atheistic, faithless, egoistic philosophy has no place in the Republican Party. Now, Paul Ryan would know of the National Review's hostility toward Rand and her which, philosophy. Which, by the way, may well be a, a fact. <laughs> Oh, Maybe sure. It doesn't have any place in there. One could argue that, <laughs> yeah. although Rand certainly for years tried to carve a place for uh, reason and, and uh, rational egoism within the Republican Party and ultimately gave up, I think. Mm. <clears throat> but um, she just said it was far too early <clears throat> yeah. to try. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, but, you know, Ryan would be right to be concerned that the National Review could turn his, its journalistic guns on him if he too were found to be an objectivist. You know, is he faking it then? Uh, well, look, you know, if you look at his replies in the National Review questions, Ryan made it clear that he rejects Ayn Rand's philosophy. He said, quote, I reject her philosophy, you know, unquote. After he, what we just heard him say. Exactly. And then he says, it's an atheistic philosophy. It reduces interactions down to mere contracts, and it's antithetical to my worldview. That, apparently, was all the National Review needed to hear. A few days ago, Ryan got the vice presidential nod. So what's one to make of Ryan having praised Rand on the one hand and having rejected her philosophy on the other? One clue can be found in Ryan's praise not of reality or of reason or of rational selfishness when he talked to the Atlas Society, but of individualism. And while in his speech uh, you know, to, the, to the Atlas Society, Ryan claims that the central battle is between individualism and collectivism, that's utterly false. That is not the essential battle. The essential battle, really, is between rational government and irrational mm. government. Um, so, you know, the rational governance of, of a country will promote individualism and treat people as individuals rather than as a collective. But it's uh, sort of the, uh, the caller dragging the dog to say that it's all about individualism um, and collectivism. Now, if you look at what he actually told um, the, uh, the National Review, there are a couple of quotes here I just want to read to you. That, that really show you the problem with what Ryan and so many other conservatives are doing, that it's actually counterproductive. He says, quote, How do you produce prosperity and upward mobility? How do you attack the roots, uh, sorry, the root causes of poverty instead of simply treating its symptoms? And how do you avoid a crisis that is going to hurt the vulnerable most? A debt crisis forever happening. Mm -hmm. So here he's talking about poverty and the vulnerable. And he goes on later to say, the way Jack, and I think he's talking about Jack Kemp, the way Jack Kemp always said it is, 
you can't help America, America's poor by making America poor. The president's policies are failing the poor. We have more of them than ever before. Liberals are walking us toward a, a debt crisis which will hurt everybody in society. We know this and see it, and we have a moral obligation to prevent it. It's important for conservatives never to cede the high moral ground. <laughs> now, this is exactly what he has ceded, of course. Of course. And the, the clue to the whole Paul Ryan puzzle is not only the non-essential, you know, focusing on individualism, but his, his uh, focus on the poor in a conservative magazine. The conservatives wanted him to talk about the poor, poverty. That is their number one focus because Christianity, which says, you know, mm -hmm. sacrifice of yourself for the benefit of others who are in need, is the central core of, of conservatism. But, you know, that's almost the, the, the main platform of all the major parties. You got poverty, it. Poverty, poverty, poverty. Right. And so, you know, what is this thing about uh, the poor? What, what is the significance of this in any politician's lingo, whether he's south of the border or north of the border, when the purpose of a government is to relieve the necessities of the poor? You're already talking about collectivism. You're already talking about irrationality. There's no way around it. Purpose drives all of the rest. And just like, you know, you have to have a purpose for knowledge, you have to have a purpose to justify the need to pay attention to reality, to apply reason, and to uh, pursue your own happiness. As long as a politician's goal is clear, as long as he says that the role of this government is to, is to allow people to pursue their own happiness, everything else can follow them. The advocacy of reason uh, and the, of rational egoism in the, term, in, the, in the form of making good government policy. Sure. But as soon as you sacrifice the purpose, as soon as you say, my purpose is the same as those communists, my purpose is the same as the Christians, you cannot, you cannot say that you're there trying to help the poor. Clearly you're not. All you're doing is taking things away from those who are either unable or unwilling, and it looks like a lie, and it is a lie. My recommendation to Paul Ryan... Keep the, fo keep the focus, keep the purpose of government clear in his mind and in all of his speeches, point to the Declaration of Independence and focus especially on the fact that the purpose of government is to make sure that people can pursue their own happiness first and foremost. Sounds like good advice. Going to go to a break now. When we return, we're going to be talking about this Queen's Park protest that's coming up tomorrow. What's that called again? El Quds Day. Okay, well, we're going to hear a little bit of last year's protest to give you an idea of what might be happening this year. When we return. You said you loved him! That's right, Otto. Now, here's a multiple-choice question for you. A, Wanda was lying. B, Wanda was telling the truth. Which one are you going to pick? What was the first one? Okay. Was it shrewd? Was it good tactics? Or was it stupid? Don't call me stupid. Oh, right! To call you stupid would be an insult to stupid people! I've known sheep that could outwit you. I've worn dresses with higher IQs, but you think you're an intellectual, don't you, ape? Apes don't read philosophy. Yes, they do, Otto. They just don't understand it. Now, let me correct you on a couple things, okay? Aristotle was not Belgian. Oh. The central message of Buddhism is not every man for himself. You and mean... the London Underground is not a political movement. Those are all mistakes, Otto. I looked them up. Well, 
and sisters, our next speaker for this afternoon is Sister Karen Brothers, and she's from the United Church of Canada. If we can ask Sister Karen Brothers to come up. I'm very pleased to be here to say a few words. And the words are, we need you. But what does this stooge government in the United States do, whether it was led by George Bush or this black man in the White House, Barack Obama? He would rather have Americans starve to death, but he cannot say no to this Zionist parasitical state. And wherever you see injustice happening, understand there is a 1%, a 2%, a 100% involvement by the Zionist regime. The same Zionist regime that sucks the resources, the blood, and everything that belongs to the people of all across the world. The first thing that it does is that it takes away the resources of all the healthy cells around it. It takes them away. Second thing that it does is it starts to multiply. And as it multiplies, it occupies or the other organs that are serving its function and going along and keeping the body alive. My brothers and sisters, the situation here is not any different. This world is a body, and this body has a cancer. And this cancer is spread, and you heard about what's happening in the United States. It's spread to different parts of it. The Palestinians are not the only ones suffering. But remember this, my brothers and sisters. Remember what is the end of that cancer cell. Either it dies and kills the body, or it's given treatment, and then it is killed to make sure that the body stays alive. That is what makes them racists. That is what makes them inhuman. That is what makes them barbarians. And that is why we oppose Zionism. And we will not be intimidated by anybody, whether it is the government of Canada or anybody else. We are blessed here in Toronto with the most wonderful, dedicated peace activists who represent many faiths and cultures. Well, what you just heard, Bob, <laughs> is what we'll probably be hearing uh, and more of it uh, at Queen's Park tomorrow. I believe it's going to be held tomorrow or perhaps into the weekend for a celebration of what some are calling Al-Quds Day. Uh, this event, they sought uh, approval by uh, the Ontario government, well, I guess it's Sergeant-at-Arms, mm -hmm. to hold the event on the grounds of the legislature in Toronto. And uh, they actually got approval. Yes. Uh, I guess the uh, the response was, we rarely deny approval except when something illegal is happening. I have to say, though, that it's absolutely 100% uh, the wrong decision, although not necessarily for the reasons that are being cited by many. Before we get into that, I just thought we'd look a little bit at what this Al-Quds Day is. Mm, don't Al have much time, though. We've got about two, three minutes. <laughs> we'll get into it quick. Al-Quds Day is officially uh, a, a, a day in, uh, that was started in Iran by... Uh, Ayatollah Khomeini. It means the Familiar holy, name. yeah, the holy or the sacred. And just 
to get an idea of what the intention of this day was, he, this is Khomeini, I invite Muslims all over the world to consecrate the last Friday of the holy month of Ramadan as Al-Quds Day and to proclaim the international solidarity of Muslims in support of the legitimate rights of the Muslim people of Palestine. For many years, I have been notifying the Muslims of the danger posed by the usurper Israel, which today has intensified its savage attacks against the Palestine brothers and sisters and which, in the south of Lebanon in particular, is continually bombing Palestinian homes in the hope of crushing the Palestinian struggle. I ask all the Muslims of the world and the Muslim governments to join together and sever the hand of this usurper and its supporters. I call on all the Muslims of the world to select as Al-Quds Day the last Friday in the holy month of Ramadan, which is a sorry, which is a determining period and can also be the determiner of the Palestine people's fate. And through a ceremony demonstrating the solidarity of Muslims worldwide, announce their support for the legitimate rights of the Muslim people. I ask God Almighty for the victory of the Muslims over the infidels. This is not just an... I mean, if you look at Wikipedia, they say the significance of this day is it's a demonstration against the state of Israel. And certainly all the media coverage suggests that that's what it is, or it's anti-Zionism. And it is. There's no doubt there's... there's, That's there. That's there. But the central question is, why? Why do they oppose Israel? Why do they oppose Zion or, or what have you? The single most significant reason is that unlike Islam... Israel is democratic, and that has a very specific meaning. It means that the laws that govern all human beings in that country are the laws made by man, not laws dictated by Allah. And that is the central conflict. The people who are who are no, demonstrating... It's very I'll, clear when the one guy says, you know, we're all going to live free and, and equal. Or no, not free. That was not, not the word. Equal under yes. Islamic law. Under Islamic yeah. law. That we'll is leave key. as equal citizens, but not free. Right. At theocracy, that means God power. Mm-hmm. Democracy means people power. And when we're talking about under God's law, we're talking about man not making laws. So what's the significance of putting this at Queen's Park? Here's Queen's Park saying, go right ahead. Celebrate theocracy, celebrate God's law, not man's law, at the very place where man makes law for himself. This is the uh, proponents of man's law saying, you know what, we're not going to choose democracy over theocracy. Every view is welcome. That, to my mind, is an abomination. It's a complete throwing up of the white flag. If this is to be held on any government property, A, it shouldn't be, but B, the last place this should ever be allowed is at the seat of democracy. This is an affront. It has... Although it has a lot to do with hatred towards Jews, and that should be discouraged, it, you know, there's free speech in this country, it should never be occurring on Queen's Park land uh, because of the fact that it is a legislature, it's the seat of democracy, and we should not be giving theocracy even an inch of legitimacy. We don't respect it. We should condemn it utterly. You know, if I was listening to Dalton McGinty in, from the Free Press just a couple of days ago, he sounds like just what you just said. He says, quote, We will not tolerate intolerance. We will not tolerate hate. We are trying to build a strong, caring, progressive, diverse, tolerant society. That is the ideal that inspires our efforts. Well, you know, but wow. you have to be intolerant. You have to be intolerant well, of bad, I, evil things. Didn't you hear last, last, year's, exactly. <laughs> last year's event? Just amazing. Well, Paul, believe it or not, the hour is up. It's been a lot of fun. I bet you it, it went has. by real quick, didn't it? It certainly did. It certainly did. Well, that's it for this week, and we will return next week, as will Robert Vaughn. So join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, hey, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you. Fade into color, color into black and white. 
But I also, I have an idea for uh, illegal immigration, you know, which is a big problem. California, we uh, pass these laws about illegal immigration all the time, and they're controversial and hard to enforce. My plan for illegal immigration, very simple. Burning river of gas. <laughs> yes. The, with the whole border, burning river of gas. And uh, I say we do Canada, too, just to be fair. Um, right. Well... We do not need Alan Thicke coming down here whenever he wants. Uh <laughs>